Welcome to the Liberationist Podcast. This is the final episode in our 2017 DXE Form Recap Series. However, we haven't covered half or even a tenth of everything that happened at the forum because there was just so much that went on in those seven days, so you will definitely continue hearing more tidbits in future episodes. In this final recap episode of the forum, we're going to be talking about open rescue. Awesome. Yeah, we've been, we've been talking for like over an hour here, so I might even just make this uh, this podcast solely your interview. What? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> no way. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> this was a really good one, too. I mean, you covered a lot of stuff, so. We go in-depth into the daylight open rescue that happened in San Francisco on the last day of the forum. I think it might just be the Honolulu show. Oh. Oh, that's too much. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> But we also talk about a lot of other topics, such as what it was like to start the Colorado chapter and how the micro-sanctuary movement fits into the work of open rescue. Stop. Stop. Stephen r- rhymes with how, sort of. <laughs> I'm your host, Stephen Rauch. Let's do this. So my name is Hannah Lowe. I am part of the DXE Colorado chapter, and I've been a part of the DXE International Network for about three years. Yeah, so I'm one of the core organizers here in the Colorado chapter, and I was the co-founder. And I also participate in the DXE Culture and Values team, both the conflict prevention side and the conflict resolution side, and then the global animal care team, and also the Colorado animal care team. So I know that you do a you do a lot of animal care stuff and you do a lot of work with the micro sanctuary movement. Um, But first, really quickly, I wanted to just ask you about starting the Colorado chapter, because uh, most people have not started a chapter. A lot of people have, but most people haven't. And I am in the Colorado chapter, so it's especially interesting to me. What, What was it like starting the Colorado chapter? Why did you decide to do it? What was that experience like? You said three three years ago? So let's see. I joined DXE about three years ago. And so I believe that I first attempted to start the Colorado chapter in January of 2015. And so there were quite a few false starts with starting the chapter. And in the beginning, I was the only organizer. And I had a couple of other organizers briefly participate and then drop out. So I felt very isolated and alone, and DXE was also much less developed as an international network. So the support structures were not quite as, they weren't quite as strong and as in place as they are now. And so right now there's a lot more support for people who are wanting to start new chapters, but back then there wasn't quite as much mentoring. And so a few times I organized protests and the attendance was not really very good and we weren't having community events. And so the chapter was just kind of a bit anemic and one dimensional. And then I actually remember, let's see, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Cause I think that in summer of 2015 was when you, Stephen came to a protest. And I believe that it was the protest where we had non-human animals as a part of the protest and you brought Aiden And then I think that later that summer was when Aiden and some other people went and listened to Wayne's talk at the National Animal Rights Conference. 
if I remember correctly. But the, the part that was really the next chapter in our development was when Aiden, Alexis, and I all went to the DXC forum together in 2016. So that it was about one year ago. And we got so much training and mentoring there. We all went to the open rescue training and Aiden and I started planning our first open rescue together. And we had never done that before. And then just a year later, we saw this explosive growth in our chapter, tons of working groups doing all kinds of different variety of work. And we had successfully released our first open rescue as, as a completely independent team without very much mentoring at all from the, from the Bay Area chapter. So we've just accomplished so much. And just since the last forum, we've really blossomed as a chapter. And we have so much shared leadership now and so many different projects going. And I can say without a doubt that Aiden Cook going to the DXC forum in 2016 was the thing that brought DXC Colorado into our next chapter of growth and development. It was like absolutely transformative. It's so interesting to hear that evolution. I mean, because you've been a part of DXC since, I mean, almost since the beginning, like way longer than most, most of us. And I remember actually, I remember going to that protest with Aiden and we were talking about it on the way over because we didn't know each other super well at the time either. And, and, um, I was like, yeah, there's this DXC thing. I don't know, whatever you might like it more than I do. Neither one of us really did anything with it again for a while there. And actually, I remember you you got Brian Burns to fly out to Colorado to give a like an intro to DXE talk. Do you remember that? I, I can't remember when that was. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Brian and I were were pretty tight a couple years ago, and so he came and visited, and so we did a a you know YDXE presentation to the lo- one of the local vegan potluck groups and so we were really kind of trying to drum up more support i think that there are a lot of sort of parallels in my development as an activist so when i first became vegan in the fall of 2011 i felt very isolated very unsupported and it was only when i found this thriving and robust vegan community called plants and animals denver that was when I actually committed to being vegan and when I actually felt empowered. And so that community support was what helped me transition from being a little bit noncommittal and haphazard about my relationship to animals to really committing and saying, I care about animals and I'm going to change my behavior. And similarly, in the very beginning, you know, a few years later, when I first started to hear about DXC, I felt very isolated again, and I was a lone organizer. So instead of being a lonely vegan, I was a lonely organizer. And I felt very unsupported, and I was doing everything by myself. And so when when Aiden came on board and really got bought into DXC's model and why it works, and went through the training that I went through at the forum, that was when we could really take off, because I finally had a partner in crime, and we could really support each other and start doing some serious things together. So that community support and engagement with peers is so important at many, many different levels. And so now I feel like we have, I'm not sure how many organizers we have, but we have 
I mean, certainly over half a dozen core organizers and then tons of people involved in working groups, we can do so much more together because we are really supporting each other and we have much more capacity now. The other thing that struck me, why I've kind of stuck with DXC. So I wasn't, I wasn't one of the founding members of, of DXC. I wasn't there from the very beginning, but I was there from pretty early on. And the reason why DXC has really always called me as a human being is because I felt like after I found DXE, I didn't have to choose between caring about animals and my different human identities. So the very first significant thing that I did with DXE was that we had a panel of all queer and trans people of color at the old DXE house back in Oakland. And we all gave different talks, short talks about being LGBTQ and animal liberationists. And so finally, I felt like I was able to connect the dots. And I could be with a community of people who also cared about animals and believed in animal liberation, and who weren't going to completely dismiss me for being a, you know, queer, non-binary person of color, with all these different human identities and experiences. Yeah, and I know that that's been one of my big areas of growth as well, being in the Colorado chapter here with you really guiding our direction and, and Aiden and others is expanding my own view of of humans as well. Like you said, especially around the, the use of language, you and, and Aiden and a few others have, have made the use of language a big focus in our chapter. And it's been very challenging and very good. I appreciate that as well, not coming from your experiences, but coming from, you know, someone who who just did not know a lot beforehand. So that's been really helpful for me as well. So thank you. Yeah, that's something that's extremely important to me. And I know a lot of the other people in the DXC network and in our Colorado chapter in particular, because we really believe that total animal liberation means total animal liberation and human beings are animals. And so it's absolutely imperative that we include human liberation in animal liberation because humans are animals. And so there's not going to be animal liberation while we're still making oppressive behaviors and remarks at our fellow humans, whether they're animal activists or not. Right. I just wanted to jump back really quickly and say one thing about your evolution as a vegan and as an activist, and then the evolution of our DXE Colorado chapter. I feel like a lot of us, myself included especially, tend to get stuck at where we are and think that where we are is where we're always going to be. And, you know, just a testament against that is that the first several times that, that I heard about DXE and saw videos and even connected with you and Brian about it, I was just thoroughly unconvinced and had a lot of personal growth and and thinking that I had to do over the course of like six months to a year. And it was a very long, long period of time for me joining the DXE community. And but here I am now and like I can't imagine it any other way. And it's one of the greatest things to happen in my life. But it was a very long journey. I mean, I feel like a lot of people maybe who are putting in work and not seeing immediate results, it's easy to get disheartened by that. But the Colorado chapter, I think, is a is an amazing example of you persisting over the course of years and changing minds and hearts and finding the right people 
and finally launching something which now is absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I would say that that experience is a pretty typical experience. So human beings have, we overestimate the changes that we've made in our past, and we underestimate the changes that we're capable of making in our future. So we kind of feel like wherever we are right now in our personality and our development is where we're going to stay. If you think about asking human beings to think about what's changed in their last 10 years of their life and what will change in the upcoming 10 years of their life, they'll underestimate what is going to come and they'll overestimate what what already came. And so people have the perception that where they're going that where they are right now is where they're stuck. And so it's oftentimes very difficult to envision the future and to be hopeful about all the things that are capable of changing when you feel so stuck right now. So I wanted to ask you, you, you do a lot of work with the micro sanctuary movement and that ties in really nicely and just really well with, with the work that DXE does and save amongst others. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is your work with the micro sanctuary movement? Why do you think it's important? What is your vision for it going forward? So I'm a huge proponent of the micro sanctuary movement. And I believe that developing a robust and empowered and trained network of people who know how to take care of animals who are rescued from exploitation is the next huge step in DXE's evolution as a network. And I also think that one of our other next big steps will be creating more of an intergenerational network with, you know, people with kids and families and things like that. But anyway, so oftentimes the animal rights movement and animal rights activists can actually be pretty far removed from the lived experiences of animals. And so you think about any other social justice movement like Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ rights or women's rights, just different movements like that. We always center the oppressed group. We center the impacted group. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter wouldn't be Black Lives Matter if it were led by white people because the power is that the impacted group is speaking from their experience and they're speaking about the impact on their community and they're talking about what they need from allies. And so the animal rights movement is a bit different because animals don't speak the language that we speak and they don't communicate how how we communicate. And so the animal rights movement is a movement of allies. We really have to be careful about always centering the experiences of non-human animals as much as we possibly can. Otherwise, we're not going to be serving them and we're not going to be meeting their needs. And we're just going to be completely centering ourselves and our human desires. So kind of thinking about what animals want. Animals want to be happy, safe, and free. They want systems of exploitation and violence to end. And maybe it doesn't make a big difference to them like how many flavors of ice cream are in the grocery store aisle. So 
The micro-sanctuary movement is really a way for us to center the experiences of animals. And also because, you know, DXC is really wanting to incorporate all forms of human and non-human liberation into our movement. Something that is a pretty big issue just in human society is that caregiving is something that's underappreciated and that goes unrecognized. So feminized labor, you know, women's work, like childcare and taking care of elderly people and sick people is something that's devalued. And similarly, taking care of animals is also devalued. So people sometimes say that it's not real work or it doesn't make a real impact. And nothing could be further from the truth because animal caretakers are saving lives and they're improving the lives of the individuals who we're, who we're supposedly fighting for. And so it's really important that we, that we always think about them and what they would want and what they, what they need. So something that I personally don't like that sometimes happens in the animal rights movement is that people say that animals are voiceless and that's very not true. If you've ever heard a dog or a rooster, they have strong voices and loud voices. And so when we use tactics like bearing witness at places of violence or using the micro-sanctuary movement to really get human beings connected to non-human animals, that is a way to elevate the animals' voices and to really center their experiences. And it kind of allows them to advocate for themselves. So when people come over to my house, we have, so one of the, one of the individuals who lives in my house is named Cantrip and she is a survivor of animal exploitation, the egg industries. And so she came from our morning fresh rescue in Colorado and she sits on a little platform that's just a couple feet away from the dining table. And so people come over and they can look at her and they can touch her and give her little snacks and interact with her. And so they can really connect with her on an individual level. And so once human beings are relating to individual survivors of exploitation on a one-to-one level, just like they would a family member or a dog or a cat or anybody else who's part of the household, their relationship to animals is never going to be the same again. How could they ever think about chicken noodle soup and not think of this individual person who they met, who they really liked and who had this completely unique personality and and her own experience? You know, it, it just kind of completely, you know, what we oftentimes say about animal flesh and secretions being violence and not food. It really becomes real because, you know, it becomes violence against Cantrip, this one individual who I met. And not just kind of this abstract thing. Right. Because for a lot of people, for, I mean, for the vast majority of people, it isn't personal. And you could even say that about, um, you know, traditional companion animals like like dogs and cats. If someone has never lived with a dog or a cat before, then they might not be as empathetic towards them. Just because, you know, we have a tendency to to have more empathy and and try to connect with those who we know or those who look like us or those who we're familiar with. So, yeah. So once once you 
have these individuals in your life and I don't have this experience yet, but I would like to someday, it becomes personal at that moment. Like you just said, it becomes cantrip, not just a quote unquote chicken, which is is something that's very easy to objectify and de-individualize in your mind. Yeah, I think that oftentimes the the animal rights movement depends a lot on statistics. And statistics are so cold, and they're really unrelatable. And human beings are kind of programmed to relate to stories. Like, stories are what we remember and what are really compelling to us. And they're much more compelling than numbers. So somebody meeting Cantrip and hearing about her story, or somebody meeting Annie and hearing about how she was rescued and how sick she was and what we had to do to get her back to to thriving is probably going to remember one of their stories much more than this many billion animals is killed every year for whatever. So I think that people do have a lot more empathy towards dogs and cats. And I think that chickens and other, other animals besides dogs and cats are just as individual and unique and quirky as dogs and cats. But the thing is that because we don't have contact with them, people don't know how to appreciate them. So they know how to appreciate a dog or a cat because even if they never personally lived with a dog or a cat, they probably had a friend or a family member who did. And so they kind of had these personal relationships with dogs and cats and could kind of relate to them as individuals. But most people have not had the experience of having a companion individual relationship with a chicken or a pig or other survivors of exploitation. And so when we manage to integrate human and non-human communities, just the way we do with, with dogs and cats, we're going to have a completely new world. Speaking of stories... A group of animal rights activists ruffled uh, some feathers in San Francisco's Chinatown today. They freed a bunch of chickens that were being sold at a poultry market. Uh, were they doing the right thing or just trespassing? But Wayne Shong, activist with the animal rights group Direct Action Everywhere, charged into Ming's poultry and started liberating hens from their cages. They're so tightly confined that they're literally pecking each other to death. So we're going to try to take her out. We took out six hens and they all had some kind of visible sickness or injury. The owner called police. Still, the group insisted the birds should be freed. They deserve to live just like you or I or a dog or cat deserves to live and be free from harm. Police arrested Shang for trespassing. One of the biggest questions that I wanted to ask you that I'm sure most people want to hear about as well is the Daylight Open Rescue at the Forum. Uh, you were an integral part of that action that we did on the last day of the forum. And your picture is scattered around Facebook, um, really powerful images from that action. So I, I just want to ask you about that and that experience and how that was for you and just what you want to share about it. Let's see. So some just some basics about the action so we went to a live poultry market in San Francisco in Chinatown. And this is where there are hundreds of various types of birds, mostly chickens, and also some 
some quails and doves trapped in these small cages. And they're basically awaiting their deaths. So it's kind of like a little storefront and there's somebody selling live individual animals, taking a couple or however many are being bought at that time, um, putting them into a paper bag and, and stapling it shut and then sending these birds to their deaths, which with, with whatever customer, you know, just, just bought them. There were also some individuals in the live poultry market who were being killed right there on site. And so some of the birds were being taken out in bags to be killed in people's homes and other, other birds were being, were being killed there on site. And so this was an extremely powerful action. The reason why I and a few other people were chosen to be inside the slaughterhouse was because it was a very small slaughterhouse and it was also owned and operated by Chinese people and it was located in Chinatown. And so it was very important to us that the people inside of the slaughterhouse be Chinese people and other East Asian activists so that we could really send the message that this is not some kind of colonial action where all these white people are telling Chinese people what barbarians they are. This is something that is coming from within the Chinese community. It's extremely important to us. And we are talking to our own people about ending violence in our community. And I can tell you that when I was little, I, I used to eat chickens and I used to eat, you know, parts of the chicken that a lot of white people wouldn't eat. And people thought that I was, you know, that I was weird for doing that. And so going to the slaughterhouse in Chinatown and really being there as an advocate for animals and somebody who is going to save them and protect them was extremely meaningful for me personally, because like so many other people, I used to be somebody who was responsible for violence towards them. And so we went into the slaughterhouse. Whenever we do an open rescue, we're always nonviolent. So we went into the slaughterhouse, we went through an unlocked door, and then we saw all the birds. We looked around a little bit in the slaughterhouse to see where birds were being killed and also where their feathers were being removed and where their bodies were being stored. And so we kind of got to see what this what this place of violence was like on the inside because we went into areas that weren't open to the public. And then we came back out and we bore witness to the animals. So we were really there with them. And instead of turning away from their suffering and running away, we were really there getting right in there, empathizing with them, sharing their experience with them, imagining what it would be like to be right there in those, in those cages, in their shoes. And so we were bearing witness and being there as a peaceful presence some of the birds seemed almost a little bit confused. So I remember when I was staring, we were standing there peacefully with white flowers and not touching any of the birds, just kind of really being there with them. And I remember the birds just kind of staring at me, really, really looking at me in the eyes. And it almost seemed like they were wondering, what are you doing here? 
all the other human beings who have come through, they either shoved us in this cage, refilled our dirty water dishes, but didn't give us any food. They really didn't give us any personal attention. Or they took out another one of us and then took them away forever. So I don't understand why you're just standing there not doing any of those things to us. Probably they had never had an experience of a human being just standing there and bearing witness with them. So so that was a pretty powerful experience to see so many birds in there packed in these tiny little crates. A lot of them were very, very sick. When we were doing this open rescue, we were really focusing on the birds who were the the most sick and the most injured. So the birds were in pretty, pretty bad condition. Some of them, you could hear like these really terrible respiratory rattles, you know, when somebody is sick and they just, their breathing sounds so heavy and so wet and just really noisy and rattly. Or certain ones had just like pus oozing out of their eyes or eyes that were so swollen that they were swollen shut. Or you know, patches of feathers missing. Uh, we saw birds who had who had died probably even weeks ago, and who were whose bodies were just kind of being, you know, in the in the corner of the crates, just like rotting and stinking, and like not even being removed. Really quick on that point. Anytime that I personally get sick, I mean, I I feel like death and. Uh, like, I'm just so thankful that there are places that I can go to get better, you know, whether it's a doctor's office or, or just or pain medication or anything like that, or even just being thankful to not have to be around people for a couple days, you know, just to, to lay in bed or something like that. And the thought of being so sick or so injured and not having any reprieve from it and not having any way to have any kind of reprieve from it is just... I mean, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine being sick or being injured and just wanting to be in a quiet place at home, have somebody taking care of you, giving you medicine, food, clean water, having a nice, clean place to rest. This was the absolute opposite. So it was it was crowded, noisy with the the sounds of panic of all the birds calling to each other and occasionally just kind of screaming at each other. Filthy birds, like all packed together, not able to clean themselves, not able to have a dust bath or do any of their natural behaviors. There was no food. There were only these very dirty water dishes that just like looked like they were filthy with feces and dust. It was pretty atrocious in there. But you actually rescued individuals as well. I mean, you were bearing witness to them, but you rescued six individuals from there. Yeah, so in my professional life, I'm actually a nurse for humans. And so going into this place of violence and filth and injury and just going going into this place of violence was a very natural thing for me to do. I felt like being a nurse, I was just extending my practice of nursing to these non-human animals who were being subjected to torture. Nurses are trained to do triage. I felt responsible for 
helping identify some of the individuals who were in the worst shape, who were suffering the most, and who maybe didn't even have very long to live because they were so sick and so injured. We very carefully kind of looked at each of the each of the birds, and then we found six individuals who were all sick and injured, and then we took them out and then immediately took them to a vet and a sanctuary and then took them to a chicken specialist the next day. And so they received all of the personalized care and the specialist attention that they needed to really heal because they were some of the sickest birds that this vet had ever seen. And she takes care of many, many, many dozens of chickens and other uh, survivors of exploitation. Right. How, how many individuals did you personally carry out? I personally carried out three. So we kind of had different. So in terms of who was in there, Wayne was kind of the lead activist in there. He speaks Mandarin. And so he was speaking Mandarin with the employee at the slaughterhouse. And so he would actually open the cages. You know, we would all kind of help to identify which would be our candidates for rescue. But then he would be the person who actually opened the cage door and then reached out of reached into the cage and then pulled out the individual. And then he would hand them to either me or Jules, Jules Pearson. And then we would carry them outside to one of the waiting animal caregivers who would be waiting outside to receive them. And then after that, they all went to the sanctuary. What was that experience like for you getting to carry them out of that place? I think that what, what Priya, one of the other activists who had kind of planned and orchestrated the the whole action said, which was so powerful to me, was that we are literally walking them over the threshold where they transform from being property into being individuals. And so we took each of them out of the slaughterhouse and then we walked them, you know, over the threshold onto the sidewalk and then into the arms of one of the animal caregivers and that was the moment that they became an individual because we rescued them and we were going to make sure that no one ever hurt them again and so being able to actually be a part of such a direct action for animals I really believe that open rescue is one of the most powerful tactics that the animal rights movement has at our disposal, because it is just something that makes intuitive sense to anyone. And I talked to people who were either vegan and non-activist or not even vegan about what they thought of this action. And even if they wouldn't have done that, even if they wouldn't have done what I did, they really got it. And they understood exactly why we were doing what we were doing. And they really respected it. It's just something that makes intuitive sense to people that there are animals who are suffering in a place of violence and you are an animal rights activist. And so it totally makes sense that you would want to take them out of that situation and give them the proper care. And also just being part of an open rescue like that, I felt like all the people who were bearing witness outside, I felt like they really had our back and the whole thing went extremely well. So we didn't touch any of the employees at the slaughterhouse. They didn't touch us. They didn't physically block us from exiting. And not even the policemen 
when we took the last bird, we said we were going to take this last bird out and take her to freedom. And the cop did not even stop us. And we were doing it right in front of him. And so this, this action, the actions that we were taking to help these birds, it was so clearly the right thing to do that not even law enforcement or the people who were actually directly involved in this industry were going to stop us. So not even, not even law enforcement or the people who were working there were going to stop us because it was such a powerful action and it made such intuitive sense. And it was obvious that we were doing the right thing by these, by these birds. And so I believe that because our activists were trained in nonviolence, everyone was bearing witness peacefully outside. We, the whole thing had been very thoroughly planned. We had been briefed very thoroughly. So we knew what to expect. The planning was very good. So everything kind of went exactly as it should have. And it was all extremely nonviolent and everybody was safe. And I think that a large part of why it went so well was because we had multiple people documenting inside videos, stills, and also the 360 virtual reality camera. And then we had 250 people right outside bearing witness. And so I felt like all of those people bearing witness outside really, it really made me feel like they had my back. And so it made me feel so much safer as an activist that was doing something that under other circumstances of like doing that all by myself, that would have been extremely dangerous, but having all those activists outside really protected us. Yeah. It's, I mean, I can tell you from, from being there on the outside with the couple hundred other activists that we had there, everyone was so, was so focused on what was happening inside or or what could be happening on inside and so tuned in emotionally to what was going on. All eyes and all of the attention was there on that place and, and on the individuals being saved. So being inside of the slaughterhouse was definitely very emotionally intense because we were there right in the middle of such violence and such suffering and misery. And when I came outside and I saw everybody bearing witness, people were in tears. Like I could tell that people outside watching what was happening in there and they were extremely present to what was going on. And I could tell that they were very moved and very touched and inspired by what was happening. And it wasn't just the experience of being there in the slaughterhouse that was so moving. It was also the experience of, of waiting outside. Yeah. Even though you couldn't see a lot of what was happening inside, um, the tears were definitely flowing. People were definitely crying, especially whenever, you know, each time that you would come out with someone was just a really powerful, really moving experience. I don't think there was a dry eye there. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, these six individuals were saved and brought out of that place, which I mean, just is absolutely amazing. But I also wanted to have a little bit of time you know, where we just talk about the bad as well, which is that, which is that at the end of the day there, you know, they closed up shop, um, Wayne was arrested, and they pulled down this, this big metal gate in front of the slaughterhouse. And, uh, and that was it. Um, 
I think we all knew then that we weren't going to get out anyone else inside. And, you know, that was, um, that was really, really heartbreaking. What was that moment like for you? I mean, it was hard the whole time because when we were briefed in advance of the action, you know, when the people who were going to be going inside were briefed, we were told that we were going to be able to save between one and six individuals. And that was heartbreaking because there were hundreds of hundreds of birds inside and birds of various species. And we were told that we were only going to be able to take out chickens. And there were definitely some, there was one particular dove in there who was in horrific shape. And I really would have liked to have helped her, but we weren't able to do that. And so it was, it was heartbreaking to have to leave, you know, like, I mean, I don't know what percent, but the vast, vast majority of animals who were suffering inside of that place had to, we had to leave them. And in the grand scheme of things, this is a tiny slaughterhouse in San Francisco, and there are many, many slaughterhouses all over the world, and a bigger chicken slaughterhouse is going to be slaughtering many thousands of chickens every single day. And so just knowing that we wouldn't be able to take them all out, even though Wayne asked for them to release all of the birds several times, they were just not going to do that. And even if they had done that, there would be more, you know, in different days, right? And so this is an early stage of the animal rights movement and it's an early stage of open rescue. And so we're still at the stage where we don't have placement for every single animal that we want to save. And we don't have enough activists who are willing to do these kinds of confrontational actions quite yet and people who are trained to do it. And so right now we're just not going to be able to save every animal from every slaughterhouse but we're really building up to that point. And we're we're working towards a world where there will be no more slaughterhouses and where every animal will be living in a sanctuary and where every single human being on the planet will have like an amazing personal relationship with many, many, you know, different species of animals and that everybody's lives will be completely transformed. So that is a world that we're building towards. And at the same time, we're not there yet and it's going to take a little while and it's going to require a lot of hard work and dedication and we need every single person that we possibly can to participate. Yeah. And we're not there yet, but I mean, yeah, like you said, we're working towards it and we're going to bring it about step by step by step. And I think that what really inspired me about DXE is that for the first time, I actually believed that animal liberation was a possibility in my lifetime and that we had a plan for how we were going to get there. So it wasn't just, you know, in my life, maybe so many people were going to go vegan and this many fewer animals per person were going to be consumed or something like that. But actually like a really inspiring vision of 
we are going to end animal agriculture and we are going to end animal exploitation and we are going to do it in our lifetimes and future generations are not going to participate in these systems of violence. And you need that kind of hope to get you through through the sadness and through the tragedy and through the violence because if you don't have that hope and all you have is the current state of the system, then then you're, you're not going to be able to be motivated to work for as long and as hard as we need to work to bring about that change, which is why that hope and that vision are, are so incredibly important. Yeah, and you know, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen at the forum next year because I don't even know, but I've been to three forums so far and every single one we've had many, many, many more activists and the actions have gotten much more daring and much more powerful. So I can't tell you what's going to happen next year. I don't know, but it'll be very cool. This is the song we sang as they pulled the metal door down in front of the slaughterhouse. Can you hear my call? Are you coming to get me now? We rescued six individuals, walking them into a freedom they deserve but were never intended to have. But we couldn't save everyone. And we have more work to do. The music for this podcast that wasn't from the forum is by Lee Rosevere. Thanks so much for listening to The Liberationist Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Rauch. See you next week. Hey, if you're still listening, I want to ask a quick favor. If you've liked these podcasts and have learned something or have felt inspired, there are two things that you can do. Number one, Share these episodes with an activist friend, someone who you think could benefit from the knowledge and inspiration we put into these. And number two, give us some feedback on how we could make this a better resource for you. Leave a comment on SoundCloud or send us an email at podcast at directactioneverywhere.com. Awesome. Thanks for listening.